All right, ladies and gentlemen, today we sit down with Franklin Oliver, a prominent social studies and U.S. history teacher with over 15 years as an educator. We talk about the political climate that we currently live in, how that's impacted his own teaching style and his methods, how he can impact future generations going forward, and how we can try to be better to one another despite our party differences altogether. We also touch upon the national controversy over Buff Jesuit being disavowed by the Catholic Church for refusing to fire an openly gay teacher. So we had some video hiccups with this one, so bear with us. Uh, the audio recording should not be affected at all. But uh, I hope you really enjoy this one. He uh, had a lot of really interesting things to say, and it's really interesting hearing his perspective as an educator and as someone who studies uh, social trends and that sort of stuff. What his thoughts are, you know, obviously with, you know, 2016 and going forward, the political climate and all that sort of stuff, but just more in how we can go forward and help people uh, moving forward. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Digital Fireside. I'm joined today with Franklin Oliver, an old personal favorite teacher of mine back at Burbuff, the high school that I went to. And um, yeah, we're here just kind of talk. I wanted to get a better perspective on maybe teaching and sort of your interactions with students and how that has sort sure. of changed and evolved over the years. And I thought that it was really, I don't know, I, I always kind of... Um, admired you as a teacher. You were very outspoken. You kind of always spoke your mind. And I was kind of just curious, you know, how someone like you sort of um, kind of operates within that sort of rule set of being a teacher and educating, kind of being there for children, that kind of stuff, and mm -hmm. helping Thank kind you. of improve, you know, kids' lives. Because I, I think that, you know, a lot of people... Um, you that's know, the goal, at least. You're right. That's, yeah, that is the, the objective, goal, I would like to think. Um, but anyway, so... Franklin, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really happy to be here, Alex. I appreciate the invitation. I yeah. the chance to um, explore some new space in beautiful Carmel, Indiana. Yes. I was yeah. really lost and struggled <laughs> to find a parking spot because no. I didn't think, how about behind the buildings, hidden? <laughs> we, we keep cars hidden here. It's fascinating. <laughs> and get a parking spot, too. I was yeah. thinking the same thing. Does no one work on a Tuesday in Carmel? Really <laughs> you got people walking dogs. You got yeah. twisted strollers. Like. It's, a, it's a little peculiar. Yeah. And actually, I should say before I even get started, um, I'm, I've left Brebuff. Right. Um, right. This fall, I'll be starting at University High School, which is technically in Carmel, so I have to get used to this. Oh. This is a brand new world for me. Okay. Um, I'm sure you will. Good luck. <laughs> Good you. luck. Yeah. Make sure you're driving 30 under. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, of I've had some conversations about that already. <laughs> oh, my God. The cows um, are the worst. I really have some uh, expectations that I didn't know that I had yeah. when I started thinking about, okay, am I actually going to take this job? I'm technically not in Indianapolis anymore. Right. So um, that was that was fascinating to think about for myself. But in terms of what you were asking about, um, one of the things I really have valued about my job as a social studies teacher is that I actually have sometimes cause and at times, I guess you could say excuses, for talking about really important things that students don't necessarily 
have a chance to talk about or a space to talk about comfortably mm-hmm. in other classes or in other places in their lives. Right. So one of the things I've been fortunate enough to do is to teach multiple elective classes. So some of those classes are things like sociology, mm-hmm. the study of people in groups. Well, you can take that in so many different directions. And that's a, a really fascinating class. And one of the things I have always looked forward to being able to do as a classroom teacher, okay, how can we explore these things that actually matter and connect with students in their real lives now and in the future? One of the classes I've taught consistently um, in the brick and mortar schools, but also online, is a class called Genocide and the Holocaust. That's right. And that's a really scary class to even say that as a name. I hope people didn't uh, automatically just decide they're not going to listen to the rest of this podcast by hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been fascinating in the past, I would say, six months or so, as folks have started talking about detention camps and concentration camps and internment camps. Right. I've had so many former students say, wait a second, I see some of this. When we looked at the stages of genocide chart mm-hmm. conducted by Human Rights Watch and uh, Gregory Stanton and people who do this stuff professionally for a living, some of this looks familiar. Hmm. Um, that's not a class I ever anticipated students would have to pay attention to in terms of their real lives. <laughs> Take notes. Uh, it's going to be happening in the United, in the United States. <laughs> so we have historically talked about what's happening in Rwanda mm-hmm. uh, t- 20 years ago now, 25 years ago now, or what was happening in Darfur about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And all those things seemed really relevant at the time, but we didn't think we'd have to apply some of that language and some of those concepts and typologies mm-hmm. to the United States. So <laughs> so that's been fascinating, uh, kind of in the realm of elective classes. But one of the things I've also appreciated is that in a U.S. history class, we get to talk about the point and purpose of the American experiment. And as I've become a more comfortable teacher and and better at integrating content in lots of different ways, I've been able to have students kind of flesh out what it means for them to be an American. Mm. What concepts about the founding of America do we hold on to? Which have we maybe lost sight of? Which might not, uh, which of those concepts might not seem as valid now as they did in the 18th century? Hmm. And so that's a long way of saying, I love my job because I get to do so much that connects not just with the past, but also with the present and at times even with the future. Yeah. So so I have a question, though. When you're doing that, are you poking or kind of fishing for ideas that you already know people are going to bring up, so you want to talk about it more? Or is it something that you really just like, I kind of don't know what they're going to say, I just kind of want to know the field? It's almost always the latter. If it's the former, then it's because there's a specific student who's come to me and said, Mr. Oliver, can we talk about this? This mm-hmm. feels like it's an important thing, but I don't really know how to ask the question about it. Mm -hmm. And so if that happens, as it did a couple times last school year, um, then I try to figure out some way to bring in maybe an article or um, on a few occasions there's been a short video that we've been able to watch. And if kids don't want to participate in that kind of conversation, no problem. They don't have to. There's There's no pressure to do that. But I do want to give kids an opportunity. And that feels especially relevant because... My previous school, Barov Jesuit, is a Jesuit Catholic high school, and we talk consistently about the notion of social justice and being good community members, men and women for others is sort of the, the tagline mm-hmm. that they use. And, well, how to say, um, <laughs> the attempt doesn't happen nearly as often as the conversation about bringing in real life 
issues, mm -hmm. um, engaging students in the <clears throat> world. We talk about doing that stuff all the time. Yeah. Some of us do it on a consistent basis, but it, it's hard to uh, manage to have those kinds of conversations when you don't know what the answer is going to be, when you don't know who might feel a certain way or have a certain perspective. Mm -hmm. What's great about my classes, at least I hope this is true, is that I work really hard at the beginning of the semester, every semester, to set situations up so that students understand that disagreement isn't negative, mm -hmm. that disagreement is almost always constructive. Yeah. And if it's intended in that vein, it can be really, really productive. Mm -hmm. So the notion of students having a perspective and I agree with it or I disagree with it, that part doesn't really matter so mm -hmm. much to me because I want them to all discover what they believe, what they care about. And I think the best way of actually doing that is, and I guess this is such a cliche, but um, in the marketplace of ideas, mm -hmm. you have mm -hmm. to have that free exchange. And I'm in a position where I can help produce that kind of marketplace, which is wonderful. Yeah. In an ideal world, like obviously you can't you know, predict who's going to say what and what's going to impact other students when you have that cross you know, conversation. But like an ideal world, you'd want to say like, you want to have all that happen without them losing respect for each other because you know when someone has a disagreement or has a different opinion for some reason that just triggers your mind like oh well now i don't respect you which is kind of a weird phenomenon if you think about it, it is. to where it like is. you're trying to preach this uh this message of we can all have this conversation just understand where we are understand who you are but that doesn't mean that anyone's necessarily wrong here maybe we don't know all the information about this so mm -hmm. no one can really be wrong yet and so it's hard for I guess you're, for someone in your situation or you're standing to get younger people to understand that, which is kind of, you know, condemnable. One of the ways I try to get that set up, and I don't think I was doing this when you were in my class, Alex. I don't think I had that this exposure yet. There's an organization called Teaching Tolerance, and they have some great, really constructive ideas for how to help engage students in conversation. One of the things they do is called a disagreement activity. And the short version is basically that um, students physically move themselves from one, I 100% agree with this, to 10, I 100% disagree, or maybe it's like and hate, something along those lines. So for me, um, and I always model this, I, I get up and walk in, in through the classroom. Mm -hmm. So if the prompt that I give is Ku Klux Klan, then I'm going to be at one because I hate the Klan almost as much as they hate me. Mm -hmm. If it's um, summer vacation, then I'm going to walk all the way to nine, because mm -hmm. I really like summer vacation. Right. So students see, okay, there's a range of disagreements. We're not going to talk about it. We're just going to physically move ourselves. So then I give them between 15 and 20 different prompts, and it ranges from Tom Brady to Taylor Swift to bananas to cats Kids move in lots of different directions. Mm -hmm. Kids go from place to place to place. I toss in a couple that kids don't necessarily know anything about. So John Coltrane is almost always one that I use. Because there are occasionally kids that know John Coltrane, most don't know. So where they move mm -hmm. or stay where they are is fascinating. And what I talk with them about as we debrief is that we've had disagreements about all this, all this stuff, yeah. 20 different things in there was no one who had exactly the same pattern of movement, but that's fine. And later on, we're going to have disagreements about things that actually matter and things that are a lot more complicated than whether or not you like bacon. Mm 
Right. Yeah. Because if you like bacon and you went to a 10, that's fantastic. But you probably don't think anything negative about me who's at a 1 because I'm a vegetarian. Okay. You probably don't really hold that against me. Mm-hmm. But that's a simple, something as simple as a food choice. So when it comes to something that's actually complicated and involves real-life human emotions, of course we're going to have disagreements. And they're mm-hmm. going to be just as fine as me being at a 1 for bacon and you being at a 10 for bacon. Yeah, understanding. So that's the kind of task that we do at the very beginning just to set up the recognition that disagreement doesn't have to be uncomfortable or problematic. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because I, I think I do remember doing that sort of exercise in your okay. class. Because I, I, I was a sophomore at the time, mm-hmm. and um, this was must have been 2007, okay. 2000. You might not very, very old. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> a little louder, Sonny. Uh-huh. Um, but Damn kids. That's really <laughs> yes, interesting. That's right. That because <laughs> I, I was attracted to that class initially because you you go through like the curriculum classes you could take throughout the next year and you're like, okay, you got you know like algebra two, geometry, genocide, and the Holocaust. Yeah. Like that kind of just pops out a little bit. So I was like, all right, well, shit, I'll, I'll take that class. And I remember it being what a very interesting class. And I, I remember just kind of hearing you talk about just your own, you know experiences and that sort of stuff. I remember there was something that stuck with me is that you, this was 2006, 2007. um, I remember you saying back at the time that you were, you considered yourself a feminist and you were openly Mm -hmm. like outward spoken about that. And that was something that to me at that point in time, very few people were talking about that, at least in my kind of circle or whatnot, that like very few people, it was before it kind of became I don't want to no. say in vogue because it makes it seem no, trendy, but it, it, it is. It'd be trendy. There's a lot of things that kind of has in like, this ten-year, you know, thirteen-year span. Yes. Like, so this like is, this is what it is. Yeah. That it was like, oh my god, you know, he was onto something way back then, right? <laughs> so it's like because I didn't really understand what feminism was. I granted, you know, I was 15 sure. at the time, so I had a very yeah. narrow worldview. I'd been in private schools my entire life. Like, I mean, it was. Something that I wasn't maybe exposed well, to. for yourself. And in 2007. for yourself. Okay, I've been private schools too. The way people talked about feminism was basically Rush Limbaugh. Right. He was the only person that was using feminism on a regular basis in American culture. Right. I think it kind of hadn't entered that political kind of climate yet. No. It wasn't a hot topic issue. No, it wasn't anything like that. And I, I just remember you kind of being, I want to say, out of the curve in that kind of sense where you were kind of exposing us to these different ideas that we would face Almost immediately, at least for me, kind of like graduating high school, getting out into the real world and going to college and being exposed to all these different ideologies and all that sort of stuff. And I think it I would just love to hear how that has like in terms of just like you teaching this class in 2006, 2007, how that has started to change opposed to like a decade later, your last year teaching it when maybe some of the stuff is more at the forefront, because I think that exercises like that. Um, educational experiences like where you you say how much you like bacon or something yeah. like that. <laughs> I didn't even make that connection until you were talking about it just now. And then it starts to make more sense because I feel like I generally, on a lot of issues, I kind of can see, I have a sort of empathy that I find is becoming more and more rare these days in terms of like, right. okay, I may not agree with you, but I can sure. sort of see I maybe where you're coming from. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like, says that all the time. Like, I understand it. Yeah. I don't agree with it, but I can yes. understand it. Because yes. yeah. I think that some people just like to paint people because it's easier as good, evil, done. And like, <laughs> not even like, okay, well, you're a Republican. You must be evil, right? Because you, <laughs> oppo- you automatically endorse all this kind of stuff. And yeah. like, I can so- sort of see maybe 
And I think that was largely in part in my education. I think it was a large part of my formative sort of process mm-hmm. where I can maybe kind of follow the trail and see and maybe empathize, not agree with, but empathize sure. with some sure. of these sort of traits. And then utilizing that, be able to construct arguments or debates or something like that where, you know, I can maybe reach that person better. That's a really good point. And actually, the class I teach where that um, sort of idea comes through the most is sociology because there are four primary sociological frameworks. And these theoretical frameworks are basically how analysis gets done. Mm -hmm. So if you're someone who focuses on the conflict perspective, then you're going to analyze social systems through the lens of conflict or competition, coercion, all those sorts of things. And that's what you're really going to focus on. Well, not everything probably has the most um, accurate reading through the conflict perspective. So maybe there's some other uh, lens that you should use. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll want to use the, the interactionist lens instead. And part of my, I guess you could say, academic training is to figure out which lens to use. That helps me in lots of other ways, too, <laughs> because it's not just about sociology. Um, it can be applied to politics Mm -hmm. or maybe an issue like abortion or immigration, where there are lots and lots of different perspectives. And depending on the lenses that you're using, you're going to see very, very different things. Mm -hmm. The trouble, of course, is that most folks have only one pair of eyes and refuse to even momentarily try on anyone else's lenses. Mm -hmm. That's the hard part. And that's part of what I think is so difficult about having important conversations in America right now. Because it is very clearly that um, you're a good person or you're a bad person. It's dichotomous thinking. It's right. left, right, good, bad. Um, and that notion of nuance or at least empathy, maybe I don't agree with you, but I'm going to try to explore this from your perspective to see if I can understand a little bit more. There's very, very little of that. Yes, I, I 100% agree. And you see it on these – I mean, you see it online all the time. I mean, oh, I, I think that – I don't want to go to another social media rant because Luke is sick of these, but um, I think it's probably the most damaging thing. It may have irrevocably ruined our entire generation in retrospect. I might go as far as to say that because you have all these insulated pockets of people in these vast echo chambers that have just – they just fester and grow and grow and grow and grow. And then it's easier to – dismiss arguments in 140 characters or less. It's easier to summarize things, gloss over nope. these little nuances. No, I don't think it's easier. It's just now in the forefront. I, I think this stuff happened when, 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 he, when he was growing up, I think it was the same thing. You just didn't hear it because it was all the way across the world. Maybe. Now it's just, it's just, it's just not, it, it was happening. It's just that you couldn't see it from yourself. Like you had to believe someone else from another town that's like, yeah, this is what's happening over there. Oh, really? Word? That's what, that, that's what people think? Yeah. That's what's happening. I, but I mean, I don't think it's necessarily, like you said, I mean, it, maybe it's easier to have the access to it, but I don't think the actual action of it, it didn't ruin our generation. I think it just people, are, it could make people more aware. There was an article published today on. that depression and like suicide attempts are the highest they have been since World War II. <laughs> so okay, I, all that, just I mean, throwing I, that out there. And I think social media is a large part of that. <laughs> anyway. That's pretty nice. Wow. <laughs> um, That's horrifying. I, isn't it though? Like, so <clears throat> I guess, what is the difference that you've observed between this you know, 
from taking your class a decade ago yeah. to now, like, what are some of the things that you notice that are different between the students, how they interact? I mean, obviously, everyone's kind of glued to their phones a lot more, but <laughs> they really are. Probably five years ago, <laughs> I walked into my classroom. I trying to sneak that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I walked into my classroom, and there were probably three minutes between uh, my arrival and the start of the next period. There were seven or eight kids in class. None of them were actually talking with each other. They oh, were geez. all looking down on at their phones. Really, and this was this was a few years ago. I took a picture um, <laughs> because I was so amazed. And every once in a while, I look back at that picture and think, "It must be so much worse now. <laughs> <laughs> it must be so much worse now." Um, what you said about the echo chamber? Yeah. Part of the echo chamber is simply the fact that we choose to follow folks that are like-minded. Right. In a very consistent way. Right. So it's important for me that I actually follow the National Review because it's a reputable conservative site. Mm-hmm. They have lots of perspectives that I don't agree with. And I'm a better person for understanding why they believe what they believe. That helps. I think for most folks, it's hard to even figure out what those other perspectives are. Mm-hmm. We don't see them. We don't have very good models for folks saying, oh, well, if you really want a different perspective on this, wait a second, why would I want a different perspective? I want to confirm what I already know. You get that endorphin rush. Yeah. It makes of me feel course. Good. Agree with that, of right? course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. One of the other things I've noticed, and this is, I suppose, a sad commentary on folks in my profession as well as social media more generally, is that fewer and fewer students are capable of constructing real-life paragraphs. Hmm what you were saying about 140 characters, 280 characters. Well, that's the way kids learn to write now. Oh, Jesus. Kids don't learn to write in paragraphs. Huh. And the notion of constructing full-fledged essays is very difficult for a lot of students. And between Brebuff and now university, I teach some of the smartest, best-educated kids in central Indiana. And if these kids are struggling so mightily... I wonder what kids who have less opportunity and less access yeah. to... Who are expected um, of the same things expected of them. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And w- when they get to college... <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> again, those expectations rise that much more. Mm. Man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I guess, have you noticed maybe like... Or take, for example, maybe that sort of that exercise we were talking about the bacon. And like sure. standing on different sides of the classroom or whatnot. Have you noticed any kind of difference between maybe doing that again a decade ago and almost to now? Are the, is, it, is there more aversion to arguing with people or <laughs> um, more agreeable? What's helpful about that exercise is that I do it on the first, second, or third day of the semester. Oh, wow. <clears throat> okay. So. Um, so lots of kids don't know each other yet, mm-hmm. and they have no idea what we're really doing. So I explain it very vaguely at the beginning of class, but not with any real detail. Um, it's harder and harder for kids not to talk during the activity now. Hmm. And 10 years ago, there was virtually no talking. Every once in a while, someone would say, are we at six? They'd hmm. want to make sure they were doing it right. Yeah. They want to make sure they were at the right number. Now, there's a lot more conversation, a lot more, um, really? Hmm. <laughs> you don't and know. a surprise. Peer pressure, um, you think, almost? Or like... <laughs> Um, I think they have very little experience being in a group and having to be quiet. Huh. Because even in class, there's not an expectation of quiet 
in the same way that there used to be. And what mean? Like, which way do you mean that? More often, probably more often than ever before, kids are doing multiple different kinds of things at the same time. In a sense, it almost reminds me of the, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Little House on the Prairie. Mm. It's probably the best example I can think of of a one-room schoolhouse. Mm. There's one teacher and kids in lots of different grades doing lots of different things simultaneously. Right. Well, with the advent of technology at schools like Brabuff where everyone is expected to have... Um, like iPad, yeah. computers, all that. Yeah. Bring your own technology. Mm-hmm. You have your device that's connected to the Internet. What that means as a teacher is that students can be doing lots of different things simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes there's a class period where I really ask everyone to be on the same page for the whole period, and we need to get through this specific material, or we're watching something uh, together. But lots and lots of class time is spent with students actually constructing whatever work it is. Mm-hmm. Either they're researching something, or maybe some kids are... Uh, working on a bibliography, maybe some kids are already at the stage where they're writing uh, sentences for this assignment that they're doing, and that's fine, and often that's really wonderful. But it also means that when there's actually a time when everyone needs to be quiet and together, that feels a little weird, Mm. feels a little jarring, especially in an hour-long class. Mm. Um, That's pretty tough. Mm -hmm. The notion of a quiet attention span, Mm. that's, that's fading. We used to do that, but just we didn't have the actual, you know, technology. We just had the books that you had to sure. do whatever work. You say, okay, we're gonna have like a free period. Everyone do your own thing, but for this class. Okay. So like we all had a research paper. We're all doing different things, looking up different stuff, but you're all together, quiet, not being distracting or anything like that. But that's it. That, and that felt comfortable. It felt well, not for me. No, <laughs> I was just kind of like out the window, just kind of staring. But no, uh, but not bothering anybody. But I know a lot of the a lot of the students were just kind of like, all right, this is our time to actually because I know I'm not gonna do it. I didn't think this way. I thought about this like in college, not in high school. Okay, this is how I thought in college. But the kids were way ahead of the curve. I went to cathedral, and so they were way ahead of the curve. So they just like knew, all right. Yep. This is my time because I know I'm not going to do it when I get home. Yep. I'm going to do it. I was just like, I'll probably get it done later. That is an interesting thought that you bring up, too. But, well, yeah. So I know we've, we're running, at least for Luke, um, we're right. running a little bit on time here. But uh, I did want to get into... Um, Excellent transition. Excellent. Yeah, speaking of you know, where <laughs> Luke went to high school. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah so... Yeah. Uh, both schools have actually been at the forefront of the, you know, the country in, in the past few yes. weeks. Really, though, yeah. Yes. Um, Indiana, man. And, uh, you know, Luke went to cathedral, and we were, were buff people. So uh, yeah. I guess <laughs> what was your perspective? I guess because I, I knew Layden Elliott, and sure. a great teacher, fantastic Absolutely. teacher. He was like, and again, up there with you with one of my favorites, and I'd love to have him on at some point. Um, but... My guess is he's going to have an agent soon. Yeah, um, probably. Yeah. Or at least a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Making sure he says only specific Just things. sitting like right in the back. He's like, no, yes. you can't really talk no, about that. We're going to cut that. Sorry. Yeah, we're going to cut, cut that. that. Sorry. <laughs> well, um, I also love Layton. Yeah. And he, my son graduated 2016. He was a cross-country guy, and Layton was one of the people that really helped my son transition to Burbuff from large public middle school. Mm-hmm. Uh, we live about 45 minutes away from Rebuff, so oh, wow. um, it was really hard for Jake to think 
you know what, I'm actually going to have friends here and be connected because I'm not going to see these people. Leighton really made a valuable difference in my son's life, and if for no other reason, I'm Team Leighton all the way. <laughs> for me, the really important thing is not this specific moment because who knows what's going to happen legally, and Lord knows I hope that Josh gets lots and lots of money and mm-hmm. gets a new job really quickly. Right. From everything I've heard, he's an excellent teacher as well, mm-hmm. and he's a really good person. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that this is a moment that opens Pandora's box mm-hmm. and allows all the sins of the Catholic Church to fly out into the world <laughs> for public consumption. Yeah. It's about time. Because <laughs> the reality is pretty straightforward. Leighton and Josh have been married for a little while now. Mm-hmm. It's a couple of years. Yeah. Um, everyone involved knew that. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a secret. It wasn't a problem. But it wasn't public knowledge. Mm-hmm. What Meaning made it public? Facebook. Yeah. Oh. Status huh. change. Social media, see? Yes. <laughs> and, and this is the kind of... Uh, this is the kind of reality that the Catholic Church has been running and hiding from. Um, they were fine with having a married gay teacher until everyone knew about it. Mm-hmm. And that was the change that happened. It became public information. Right. Now, I'm hoping that in the bigger sense, this allows folks to start paying attention to the reality that the Catholic Church simply doesn't believe that all human beings are equal. No, yeah. Yeah. There are clear hierarchies in that church. Mm-hmm. Straight people are better than gay people. Men are better than women. Catholics are better than non-Catholics. And um, I, I talked about this a little bit on my podcast, the Houdini Pod, probably two, three weeks ago. Uh-huh. So for folks who've already heard me say this, sorry. It's worth hearing, hearing again. One of the largest religious institutions in the world, and certainly one of the most powerful has hierarchies of human beings. We don't talk about it that way. We don't think about it that way. But that's exactly what's happening. And um, I defy anyone to disagree with that statement because you really can't disagree with it. It's it's apparent and true and horrible. And so I'm hoping that despite the pain that this is causing for Leighton and Josh and their families, that this really does start a much broader conversation. And that the attempt to... um, Close Pandora's box will be met with mm. ridicule. Um, that seems to be the only thing that's actually going to make a change. Yeah. So nothing with the schools themselves. Like you think they did their part in it and just kind of handled it the way they could have, or is there oh, something more I think that? Cathedral probably <coughs> um, took the path of least resistance. Well, yeah. I mean, this they is were a short-term public relations arm there too. So it's kind of like <laughs> this is a short-term public relations mm. problem. Um, but I would be shocked if more than a handful of students don't come back next year as a result. Mm-hmm. You would think so? Well, I mean, I know personally from me going there, and I recently graduated, so 13, I graduated 13, okay. so I kind of had the feeling of, like, the people who are there still. Um, and I know in the four years I was there, we saw a lot of people who were, you know, gay or not. Mm-hmm there and I feel like do you think like all those students don't they don't feel welcome anymore or they feel like now they're gonna be judged now before like maybe they were silently judged I don't know they didn't know though or they maybe they didn't care but now that it's out in the front now it's there now it's like I'm awkward I'm in this space people know I'm gonna get out of here I think it might impact admissions 
for the next year or so. But in terms of students who are already at Cathedral, who have yeah. already established yeah, friends. And... It's so hard to leave. Oh, yeah. It's so hard to leave. It's and true. are you going to leave and say, well, I'm going to go to Ritter instead? Oh, no. Or Cena instead? Yeah, you're going to go to Rebuff or Park Tudor or University, I guess. But that's a that's a massive change. That's true. And are you and if you're going, are you going and sort of uh, waving your freak flag that much faster? Hey, everybody, look at me! I left Cathedral. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm here because I'm queer. Mm-hmm. Feels like a big ask of a high school student. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. Feels like a big ask. See, I mean, I know a lot of my classmates were taken to Facebook and like. A little bit, of re- not a little bit. They were really upset about the decisions sure. that they were, that was made and stuff. Oh but, yes, and that goes back to what we we're saying. It's like I understand Cathedral's decision. I don't agree with it, but at the same time, I do believe that they were kind of strong, strong armed. I don't think. I mean, they had to keep their status. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of things that go on there to where I think they value because Cathedral is all about tradition, and that's like yes. what they live and die by. Absolutely. And so you can't really go back on what you preach on and not just Catholic but just like it's the school itself is held up on tradition. Alumni, people who love it, what they do right. every year. And, and that's part of what makes all this feel so problematic to me. Mm. It's the institution valuing the institution more than the Over people the in the institution. Who make yeah. it an institution. Yes. That's true. And, and that's and that's hard. That's why I commend Burbuff. Even though I'm not there anymore, mm-hmm. I don't really have a dog in this fight in, in some important senses. Um, Burbuff did the much harder thing. Yeah by choosing to do what they believe is the right thing as opposed to the simple or easy thing. And that's, uh, that's a really tough task. But were they nonprofit? Were, did you guys already have, were you guys really a They're Catholic school though? Yes. So you guys could serve Eucharist at Mass and stuff? Yes. Okay. Um, there are lots of, I want to say legal, but um, have an administrative elements within the Catholic Church. So the Jesuits are a separate organization mm-hmm. in a, some senses. So the Jesuits are still there. The Jesuits can still perform all the their priestly functions. Um, and the Jesuit organization nationally is fighting against this, fighting against these policies. They want to be able to um, allow gay married faculty so, yeah, to continue serving there. That's what you're supposed to I mean, like, I, I think that's what you're supposed to do. I mean, that, that's I just because what I was saying about the tradition with the cathedral is that yeah. you, you, you traditions don't stand the test of time because time changes. Things change around <laughs> it. So you can't uphold all these old traditions that you have. No matter It's going to end at some point, and at some point someone's got to say, okay, we got to change it a little bit, a little bit, a little bit until it becomes the new thing becomes a norm. And so I don't get why cathedral was the one that just didn't, you know, agree with what Ruff was doing. Kind of like this, this could have been like a way to – really start like a like not a revolution but like a renaissance and, and i think it, the notion of renaissance is really scary oh yeah no it's people do really people not scary. like that especially nah. for old-timey yes places like cathedral yes. did burbuff take that first was burbuff the first burbuff one first, to, yeah. okay and then like the very oh. next week and then Yikes. yeah and because they were together so like that that came i could understand back more maybe back. cathedral was put on the spot first with that but it seems like they already kind of had yes. that <laughs> domino effect going for it yeah. you know yeah. it's like Probably wouldn't be as big of a deal. Well, whatever. But so I guess beyond that, like for people who don't. One other thing. Sure. Sure. Um, This has been part of a longer conversation that's been going on for a couple years, and I know that Rebuff has been working really hard behind the scenes, quietly for a couple years, changing some of their HR language, specific policy, Mm -hmm. um, and 
anticipating that at some point there was going to be a public um, acknowledgement right. of the situation. Now, I have no idea what Cathedral had been doing, what kind of groundwork they might have been laying. I just, I just don't know about that part. So mm-hmm. I want to, I want to be fair mm-hmm. about this. I mean, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess for other people to give some more context as well. So because the archdiocese disavowed Rebuff. right? I mean, I'm sorry. Yes, disavowed Rebuff and Cathedral <coughs> kind of kowtowed to them. Um, is there any kind of monetary value as well that they are losing out on because of that, or is it strictly just here you can't practice this, 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 or whatever? I'm trying to think um, of reasons why Cathedral would want to kind of fall in line in that sort I'm of I'm sorry, it's the tradition. Just the tradition. I, there's I'm no gar- other. You don't think there's any <clears throat> other like monetary benefit? No, because like he said, there's stuff people knew. Really? This is not, people knew. He's been coaching. He's not coaching. He's been teaching there for 13 years, man. Yeah. People knew. And there's people who come in there who are who are gay who go about their lives and leave and are great alumni and do great things. Like, there's, this is not, like, a new concept. Maybe if it was, like, the 80s, 90s. Yeah. This is, no, this has been going on for a while. They know, like he says, he, we don't know what was going on in the, you know, department about this, mm-hmm. but, like, how they're going to deal with it. Because there's people in my class, too, who went through, like, transitions and did all that stuff, too. And people just, like, okay, like, that's your choice. Like, there was no, like, sense of, that's why people in my grade were so, like, shocked about it. Yeah. It's because they're, like, well, we saw you guys be that lifelong connections traditional kind yeah. of school that accepts everybody but now here is it when it's public it's time to be that you guys are running away from it yeah exactly which right. they were confused about and uh, enraged about hmm. and so like i can see their point but at the same time there's like computers like oh i don't know what to do i mean like, <laughs> so it what he wants like to do like maintaining <clears throat> their tradition meant betraying their values right that's i mean, a I mean it's, a, it's a it's a it's a weird thing to say yeah especially mm-hmm. to something that especially in central indiana that's very revered <laughs> like yes like Yes. Now, when you say that, it's going to be like, oh, you went to the cathedral. Because I don't really have much of an attachment to my high school at all, really. I do really. Like, I, don't. I mean, aside from the few classes I've taken. So, like, I kind of have, like, a pretty straightforward look on it. Okay. So, I, yeah. I don't okay. feel that way about cathedral. But I can understand why people really, really wish they had gone the other way with that. And, I, yeah. I, don't know, I mean... There's so much more I want to say, but, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be okay. ready to go here. But there's so much because... More. <clears throat> what they do in a situation like this, like, how are you going to, like, not backpedal, but, like, how are you going to recover from this? Like, yes, Cathedral will still be a great school, still have great people. Like, there's no ill will wished upon them, but they kind of, they, sure. they, they oofed. And so, <laughs> they, 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 <laughs> oof. yeah. they, they oof. So, it's like, what are you going to, the yeah. next five years might have some impact with them. They, you know, I'll be surprised in 2020 they come out with something that tries to you think they'll include walk back people. On that? I think they will, but it's going to be too late and the people's trust has already been yeah. you know, broken. I, I think they're going to that. try. Like, they're going to see an effect. Like you said, there's going to be people who leave there. There's going to be an effect on it. And they're going to be like, oh, crap. Like, was it really worth it to stay a part of this archdiocese? Like, yeah. In a progressive world where you even have the Pope saying back and forth whether or not it's good or bad. Like, you, you can't just straight up say, oh, nope. This is what it is, black and white. Yeah. <laughs> like no, like it's not black and white more people that accept that it's gray now. So yeah. like you, you have to transition, you have to learn with the times as well. And people for some reason aren't, you know, taking that leap yet. And, you know, point. it's it's for everything. Like it's gonna repeat itself over and yeah. over. It's gonna take like think about it. the world is not ready. I guess the world is not ready for like each group that comes along. So like first it was you know black people. We're still not ready for black people. But now <laughs> we're on our way out. People are getting tired. Like ah, oh, we don't care about your problems anymore. We're getting our way out. Now it's, it's the gay we people who are in power. Right. And now it's the gay people. And then soon the gay people will be like, ah, oh, people will get tired of them and burnt out of them. And then it's going to be the trans people. It's going to be, it's just, 
I don't know. Like, I feel like it's just going to keep repeating and people are going to get burnt out by these groups. And I don't know how people are going to deal with it. I really don't when I'm 50. We'll see how, if this is even. We should still do. If this, fire, so if this is even a story. These damn kids are doing. <laughs> All right, Luke. But yeah, we've we've kept you a little bit long. Um, I'd like to stay and talk with you until two, if that's all right. Yeah, I still have some more questions for you, just in general about yeah, teaching and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but it was a pleasure talking to you guys. Pleasure meeting you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Luke. Yeah, it's a good conversation. I really appreciate this, Luke. Where can they find you on uh, social media? Uh, you can find me at Indie Chubbs. That's with two B's. Two B's on Twitter and Instagram, and the Digital Fires Are you on Instagram? Are you doing stuff on the Instagram? I am doing stuff on the Instagram. Okay. He just doesn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't give me anything to post. He thinks it's, he thinks it's damaging to his generation. <laughs> These damn kids <laughs> ruining everything. Use it to promote yourself. Don't use it to... That help. is interesting, though, because unrelated, that kind of like way back to our conversation, like I first started the, the technology implementation. Uh-huh. First started like when I was a senior where like Cathedral provided iPads for everybody. I didn't take it. Like you could choose to take it or not, but mm-hmm. I was like... Because you have to get it back afterwards. Sure. But at the same time, like now, it's like what you're saying that like, you bring your own, which is like more college stuff. And yeah. it's just like, man, these kids, these kids, <laughs> these man, they're getting young. Yeah, these, these youngsters getting so much shit early. All right. Well, we're gonna take a quick break here. I'm gonna get something to drink, and uh, we will continue back momentarily. Okay. Uh, if you're ready, we can just kind of yeah, go absolutely. back into that. No sweat. All right. Well, awesome. Um, now that we're back here, uh, I did kind of want to talk to you a little bit more, just maybe about going forward with stuff and actions that maybe we could keep be cognizant of or keep in mind to help do our own part in maybe raising or nurturing the next sort of generation, uh, mentoring the next generation in terms of productive sort of discord. So I think that... You know, whether you voted for him or not, I think that our president does not set good examples on how to debate. Sure. I, I think that is maybe not a Republican or Democratic issue. I think that's no. kind of a, in my opinion, like it's very personality driven. <laughs> yes. So, like you, you see this sort of boisterous, uh, very uh, my way or the highway. Yes. Uh, I'm ignoring anything that you know, causes dissent or whatnot or uh, that sort of thing. And I'm wondering, you know, what kind of cascading ramifications could this have towards our, you know, youth of tomorrow or whatnot or Gen Z or whatever you want to call them? I mean, how, how do you see that? To reflected? be honest, it's really scary. And fortunately, I, I see it almost not at all in my students. Huh. Where I see it is in the culture at large. Hmm. And I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but um, – the Southern Poverty Law Center has a hate watch group. And one of the things they do <laughs> is basically track um, hate groups and hate incidents. Mm-hmm. And since Trump was elected, the number of hate incidents has risen dramatically. The number of hate groups has also risen dramatically. Lots of those people are buoyed not just by believing that the president sides with them and his comments of this weekend about the squad is a, oh. a great reflection of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but his notion after Charlottesville that there were good people on both sides of the Charlottesville um, protest that ended in the death of Heather Heyer. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's not a death. She was murdered. Someone ran her over with their car. Um, those folks are incredibly emboldened 
by this president. And my fear is that folks on the left are going to believe that they have to respond in the same kind of fashion. They have to be as loud and, uh, how about we say, consistent as possible. Um, really what I mean is unyielding to factual information. <laughs> Holding on to, to a position regardless of its validity. Yes. Um, and that would be really scary because at the moment there's still some adults in the room, politically, culturally. There's still some adults, but the person with the biggest microphone isn't one of them. And that's a brand new reality for the United States. We've simply never had that before. That was the interesting thing to me, because you're seeing that not just on the Republican side now, but you're seeing that in the Democratic debates where I want to say, um, you're familiar with Andrew Yang? The, yes. 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 I think he was like one of the few uh, candidates in that uh, primary debate to respect the rules mm-hmm. in terms of like, yes. let's not interrupt, let's not go over time. Yes. And you, there's like a graph that shows the amount of public speaking each exactly. candidate had, and he was yes. like at the dead last. So yes. like, we are, I feel like we are being shown and taught that, you know, following the rules and that sort of stuff is, doesn't win. It it's for losers. It's for losers. Yes. yes. So like, I, yes. and I think with that stuff that Trump has said about all that stuff. I'd like to think that he's not making that comparison that these crazy alt-right people are good, but that he misspoke. But again, it's so... We Except that we know day. he didn't misspeak. And right. He had multiple opportunities to <laughs> yeah. walk it back. And uh, now, he, because he doesn't walk it back. He doesn't. And in that that's sense, his personality. That's consistency. Yeah. Yes. Um, he's going to stay with something regardless of whether it actually makes sense for him to do it. Because it's perceived as weakness. Yes, he's not willing to compromise. He's not willing to admit yes. that he was wrong or vulnerable and that sort of thing. That's the malignant narcissist in him. Yeah. And I, yes. I think that that is teaching. It's showing, unfortunately, Absolutely. that in this capitalist society in yep. the United States of America, that that unfortunately gets you results. Yes. And, you know, that uh, we talked about this about a week or two ago with this YouTuber, I mean, look, we're talking about this, that unfortunately uh, committed suicide. And um, he was dealing with a lot of mental stuff. Mm-hmm. And we, I said it last time that we are seeing this phenomenon of yes. these young men that would rather die than admit that they have a weakness or yes. admit that they need help and they need a helping hand because our society is it the is it the role models? Is it the leaders in our society that are saying that that is is it cultural? Is it our media? I'm just trying to find the causation for some of this stuff. I, I think it's deeply cultural. And unfortunately, we also live in a culture, and I don't know about how this particular YouTuber um, managed to kill himself, but um, historically, at least over the last 25 years or so, the incident of suicide attempts has been slightly more female than male. Mm. But the rate of Successful suicides is dramatically male. more male, yes, mm-hmm. because men use guns. Yes. Men have I've access to guns, and it's um, overwhelming. It's absolutely overwhelming. Probably two weeks ago, I saw that um, for the first time in decades, I believe since the beginnings of World War II, the American uh, life expectancy has actually gone down. Wow. And it's a combination of suicides and overdoses. Mm-hmm. And that combination really seems to signal that we're living in times of a very, a deeply dysfunctional society. 
And you're exactly right. People struggle so desperately to even ask for help. Yeah. And then if you have to ask multiple times, what does that say about you? What kind of labels do we use? They're right. almost all negative. Right. And particularly as a male, um, we gender weakness in so many <laughs> subtle and unsubtle ways <laughs> that I can't imagine how much harder it must be for males um, even than females to say, yes, I, I have to get help. I, yeah. I can't do this independently. And we were talking about that even last episode, too, is that, you know, for me, again, not being a woman, I don't I have a very one sided view of this sort of issue. So when, you know, toxic masculinity, a woman talks about toxic, toxic masculinity, yeah. they may see a complete different side that I'm oblivious to. And I will respect that. But for me, what I perceive as toxic masculinity is this John Wayne gung ho. Yes. Uncompromising, like just, you know. Drinks like a fish, smokes all the time, and just, it's just this like it's not realistic. It's not attainable. It's not emulatable in any kind of real way. And I think that that is so damaging to our society. And we have this um, this phenomenon of <laughs> like the, again what I was talking about earlier is kind of a half joke, but like the social media stuff almost yeah. ruining a generation. <laughs> it's <laughs> like you see people all the time on social media um, only at their best, of course, and so you feel inadequate. You always have to measure up. So then you only post stuff at your best. And it just is this crazy cyclical cycle yes. because, you know, I, I see alumni, we've got our 10 year reunion coming up and I, I see, um, you know, alumni and that kind of stuff from my class that, you know, I've heard stuff going on. I'm not going to name names, but I've heard some stuff going on, but you know, sure. you take a look at their Facebook. All smiles. Everything looks perfect. Oh, everything looks perfect. Yep. Idealistic even. Yep. And, you know, I, I just wonder what that is doing to, um, our society, like we're all like in this alone together in a weird way. Like we're so like isolated. That's a great phrase. <laughs> like, That's a it's great so, phrase. It's crazy. Yes. Probably 10 years ago, PBS did a program, I think it was Frontline, called Generation Like. That was all about how adolescents, these are people right in your age group, yeah, um, have discovered the new currency isn't about how many dates you can have. It's not about what car you drive. It's about how many people like your social media post. <laughs> and it's absolutely fascinating to see the links that people go to to attain more likes. Yeah. And this was 10 years ago. Oh, now God. <laughs> now uh, smartphones are ubiquitous. Yeah. And there are so many different filters that people use. There have been occasions where I've seen people on social media feeds and I thought, I wonder who that is. Mm-hmm. Then I saw the name and thought, oh, oh, that's not what that person looks like. Yes. <laughs> Oh my gosh! There's a whole. Su- I love Reddit, so I. I uh, okay. Uh, there's this whole subreddit called Instagram Reality, where basically oh, no. they show yes, like they have like this like it's a meme where it's like you know profile picture versus like your tagged picture. Yeah. Totally different. Yeah. Um, oh. But the natural progression of this is really interesting to watch, and because um, I, I dated this Instagram influencer, um, she was like. Paid to like sponsor fitness stuff or whatever okay. a while ago, and I said this before on the podcast, but she would she would delete posts if they didn't get enough likes. No matter how Ooh. much she personally was invested okay. and thought this picture okay. meant something, sure. if she didn't see that magical number go up, okay. wasn't interested in it. She's like, oh, I hate it. I, it's it's so crazy how this works. And if you've seen the recent stuff with, have you heard of like deep fakes before? Yes. Oh. Have you seen the one they just posted this where um, they put Jim Carrey in the place of Jack Nicholson in The Shining, 
and it is eerie. <laughs> it is eerie how well it is. And this is some amateur guy doing really? this. Yeah. It's very creative. Well, like, I wonder now. And this is me just, like, to theorize and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Like, because it's, it's the writer in me. But, like, do we reach this sort of, like, apex, this sort of crazy um, point where people – just, like, we have this also almost, like, massive rejection of what we see online because it's like, oh, well, that that's a deep fake. Or, no, that's not Ooh. real. So you almost get, like – I mean, I can't wait for the presidential attack ads of 2024 or something like that when the deepfake stuff is like readily available. Yes. You get, oh. you know, Trump. It might all be fake like news. That. Yeah. Well, that's the scariest thing. It really thing. might be. So, I mean, because, I mean, it's basically been your job for a while to kind of look oh. at these different societal trends and just how this stuff sort of evolves and like. Where in the world do you see all this going? Like, even, not even a decade, half a decade from yeah. now. Like,. <laughs> And that's part of the scary part because the technology advances so quickly yeah. and can be applied in so many different ways for good and for ill. Right. That I have absolutely no idea what's coming <laughs> down the horizon. Is that exciting or is that Abs- terrifying? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I try really hard to be optimistic. Yes. And yeah. know that there are always going to be really positive applications. Um, but I think part of what we were talking about earlier comes to play again here. We're living in an increasingly malevolent culture, Mm. and the point isn't necessarily to have the best ideas, but to have the loudest voice. Mm. And if you have a voice that can drown someone else out, then you automatically win. The same is probably, well, I would argue the same already is true for political advertisements. Um, (laughs) Political ads have for a long time been really harsh. Yeah. Back when Jefferson and Adams were running in their second contested elections of 1800, they were saying really awful things about each other. Um, Like really awful things. (laughs) Um, And these guys used to be close friends. But back then it was just words. There were no images to go along with it. And nothing could go viral. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Next year, there's a really good chance that, say, Christian Dillebrand is the Democratic nominee there's a really good chance that there'll be some deep fake of Kristen Gillibrand having sex in a, uh, in a concentration camp. Oh, I'm sorry. Detention center, um, with a series of migrant children. I mean, I wouldn't at all be surprised if someone constructed an ad like that. Wasn't there some hubbub about, I forget if it was, uh, Pelosi or Warren appearing like drunk, giving a speech or something. I think it was. Oh, yes. Yes. And then, but that, that's yep. the climate that it's had. So even if someone does do a deep fake, there's going to be a, a staggering amount of people that automatically have their own narrative that they automatically yes. want to push. It doesn't matter what the evidence is. So it doesn't. Almost all of this becomes meaningless in a sense, in a weird way. And it's yes. going to take society a while to catch up to it, I think. But. Separating fact from fiction. And to be perfectly honest, we've always had a bit of trouble with that because presidential administrations... Um, have consistently blurred the lines between fact and fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a U.S. history teacher, sorry. So the Gulf of Tonkin attack that got America into the Vietnam War was an attack that never happened. It literally didn't happen. Because why the hell would North Vietnam attack the United States? Mm-hmm. Um, they're not stupid. <laughs> they understood what that would have meant. Um, but it's faked. Americans didn't know it was faked and didn't want to believe it was faked. And mm-hmm. even once the evidence was presented, people still didn't want to believe it was faked. 
now we have a president who lies um, overtly and obviously without seeming to suffer any consequences. Right. So what's going to stop the next person or the next group of people from, again, inventing their own facts, lying with impunity? I don't, I don't know that there's going to be any reason they wouldn't do that. Because yeah. like you said, people cr- construct this narrative. They're going to hold on to it regardless of the new evidence or information they get. And that's, like, terrifying. It works. Yeah. So, like, how do you take steps, maybe, even going forward or in the past, how do you take steps to maybe start combating that when you're teaching these kids? I mean, I have lots of little um, tools in in my toolbox, I guess you could say. Um, One of the great things that we do is actually spend time – and shout out to Brian Hamlet, who turned me on to the Stanford History Education Group. Mm-hmm. They do lots of specific materials that help students basically um, determine, okay, what does this source mean? Mm-hmm. How can I put, this, put it into a specific context? How can I determine the likely validity of this source compared with this other source? And that kind of comparison shopping, all right, I've got three paragraphs. They're all about... Oh, Indian schools in the 19th century, but from three different perspectives, which of these perspectives do I want to hold on to most? Where are the biases going to be? If it's about Indian schools in the 19th century, there's no real worry for students. There's not any personal connection right. to that, at least almost never. I mean, we live in Indiana, the land of Indians. Of course, there are no Indians here. <laughs> I think there have been two Indians in my school in the past 15 years. No kidding. I think that's right. Wow. Um, Really nice guys. I like them both. And population that just doesn't exist. Uh, But they can use those same tools figuring out, all right, which of these materials makes the most sense? Where are the biases I can detect? They can practice when it doesn't mean anything Mm -hmm. other than a a grade and some class time. And they can use those tools when it comes to their actual real lives. Um, That's the kind of thing that I do. I also ask students to look at different kinds of um, media sources. Mm -hmm. There are lots of charts that basically determine, all right, uh, where are they on the political spectrum? Are they far left? Are they in the center? Are they far right? Are they somewhere in the margins? Um, Also, what's the level of veracity? How accurate, how truthful are these media outlets. And there are some that are incredibly high on the veracity scale um, and some that are ridiculously low. And so I simply provide students with that information and Mm -hmm. challenge them to go higher and higher on the veracity scale. The problem, of course, is that, especially when I'm dealing with sophomores, there are times when uh, the most accurate sources, like The Economist, are are a little bit too difficult for them to read. Mm -hmm. So then they can go down the scale a little bit, um, and they're also going down the Luxile scale a little bit. So it's just a little bit easier for them to manage. But those are the kinds of conversations, kind of resources that I actively show students because I want them to understand that people don't always have their best interest at heart. Right. Including people that are quite literally paid to, but don't. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds so sad. Uh, but that's kind of the reality <laughs> that we live in, It definitely is. It definitely is. I would argue that your job is probably more important than ever at this point when it's coming uh, in. I mean, you have such a 
you know, I, I, I loved your teaching style and you had such a great, you know, strong voice. And I think that, you know, you're not afraid to just kind of speak your mind on that sort of stuff. And I, I'm just trying to th- figure out a way in my own small part to um, try and help combat this sort of stuff because I feel like we have both sides kind of locked in on yes. their own extremes. You yes. have people killing it, running over other people in Charlottesville. You have people hitting other people with bike locks. And stuff. It's, it, there, there's violence. There's escalating. There yeah. was a guy shot the other day trying to firebomb an ICE detention facility or something. Oh, yeah. I mean... He died, right? He, oh, yeah. I thought it... Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, 69 years old, I think. Okay. Um, and uh, and the weird thing is, I don't know. I, I mean, like, uh, I don't know. It's it just like... It's just it's so surreal, in a way, to see this happening on our own yes. soil. Yes. And in even a weirder way, you kind of feel more... And the people I've spoken to feel more disconnected than ever before in terms of just like... Sure the reality sure. part of it. Like it's, and I wonder if that's maybe a byproduct of our increasingly technological age. I wonder if that's, you know, something that is. You're probably right. And I think we're isolated in lots of different ways. Um, I should ask, um, was Nick Rudisill in your U.S. history? Yes. Do you remember? Okay. Yeah, Nick Rudisill. I remember that name. Um, yeah. Nick was, Nick is still a very conservative person. Right. Um, was incredibly conservative as a 15-year-old. And, this really is an answer to your question. <laughs> it's okay. Tell it anyway. <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that Nick knew that I really liked him and I cared about him. Yeah. And I, I really believe that that meant uh, – shout out, Nick. It's been probably two years since I've seen you. Um, you have to come through university. Um, I'm pretty sure that we were able to have much more connected conversations, even about things where we really had strong disagreements – because we already had the pre-existing connection. Um, I wasn't having a conversation with just some person who has different beliefs. I was having a conversation with Nick, who I really like and mm-hmm. respect. And that meant that it was a better conversation for me, a better conversation for him. And it doesn't mean that we necessarily shifted, but that empathy we were talking about earlier, that was there. That was almost, in a sense, built in. Mm -hmm. And I think that the difficulty of having challenging conversations where you know you're going to disagree often keeps people from having the conversations. But I'm convinced that the difficulty is exactly why we should continue having those conversations. If it matters, then it matters. Go ahead. Do it. Talk about it. Figure it out as best you can. Um, recognizing that you're still going to love each other at the end of the conversation. But people kind of shy away from anything that makes them feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. or maybe seems like it's going to be difficult. Because after all, I can just go back onto my phone and yes. re-enter the echo chamber. See, that's kind of the thing, too. And I, I wonder if maybe it's more difficult as an adult to do that because you're not necessarily placed in that sort of scholastic environment. Sure. You are basically sent to your nine-to-five job (laughs) in an environment where talking about the wrong kind of politics will get you in trouble with HR. So you kind of keep that to yourself. (laughs) And then you go home and then you, you know, talk with your spouse or maybe your core group of friends, which, you know, typically will all sort of have similar viewpoints. And so that kind of... self-selected. Yeah. And so then when you have that sort of you try and find that discourse, you are reaching out to someone online 
You're talking back yeah. and forth with him, not face to face. You don't see the human behind the words. Sure. You just see the sure. words infer their own inflection. You infer their own tone. You probably have this whiny imaginary voice in your head for like the opposite side that you don't agree with. Of course. And then so it's just all this hateful, vitriolic sort of stuff. And I, yes. I think that oh. we would benefit so much from having these kind of face to face conversations. And um, I find really true. for myself is that I, I lean. Uh, liberal on some issues, I lean conservative on some other issues, but I find that people like me, I, I'm having a hard time figuring out where I fall, and I think maybe that's a failing with a two-party system. One of the many. Right. But, like, I don't many. really know where I fall anymore and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Like, I know where I lean now, obviously, it's liberal, it's to the left, but, like, um, you know, it's, it's like... It's like, hey, you need to stop sitting on the damn fence. You need to pick a side because we're going to war. Like, it's some kind of well, crazy and that's, thing. And that's, again, is the issue we were talking about earlier of everything being so dichotomized. Yeah. Um, every political issue is either left or right. And sometimes that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. Sometimes, sometimes what? Why does this group? No, I don't quite get that. <laughs> doesn't really make sense. And sometimes it changes. Right. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, my political leanings have changed. I mean, I used to be, I grew up in a very uh, democratic household, and I was, like, full left on everything. And then the mm. older I've gotten, you know, there's a few issues. Like, you know, like I'm an advocate for gun, you know, not, like, overtly guns, but I think everyone should have the right to defend themselves. In a perfect world, there would be no guns, but unfortunately we live in a very flawed world. But, like, so, yeah. for example, like that, like, I've kind of gone a little bit to the right on some specific issues, but remain mostly, you know, kind of on the left. So... It's just interesting how, you know, people kind of, I, I think it's healthy for people to maybe sort of evolve as they kind of, you know, get older and have a bigger worldview and kind of are exposed yes. to more stuff. Yeah. Like living in St. Louis, I think, for four years was probably the craziest, most eye-opening thing for me. Um, and then like going out to L.A. and just seeing, I mean, I was out to L.A. I was out in L.A. two months ago and there were like whole like colonies of homeless people yes. it, it was so surreal yes. it was like out of a damn like sci-fi movie the apocalyptic nightmare yes and yes. I, i'm like is this actually america like this is supposed california is supposed uh-huh. to be this like you know great place to live weather's nice but yeah traffic sucks but it's just it's crazy to see well and apparently people. um the weather is why there's um such a large homeless population that's permanent oh because you can manage to live outside that makes more a safely. lot of sense yeah so in Indianapolis, we have colonies, but they're relatively small. Right. Um, <laughs> at least in part because the police break them up so consistently. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's also quite literally deadly at times to be out on the streets in Indianapolis. Yeah. Where's LA? No. <sighs> My best friend lives in LA, and uh, I got to visit last February and four glorious days. <laughs> Sometimes it's really hard to move back. To, yes, uh, yeah. the Midwest. I, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> it's the saddest plane ride back I think I ever took. And I've taken it before too, so I knew what I was in. I'm like, you understood. You yeah. understood. Yes. And yes. I came. I come back here. It's the the weather app says it's the same temperature, but it feels like it's 10 degrees hotter. It's so humid. Yeah, it's just absolutely. Oh, uh, like if I didn't have family and friends here, I don't. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> There's a reason California is the most populated state by yeah. a, a country mile. So if you lots of reasons actually, but (laughs) well, yeah, Um, I thought that was stuff was really interesting. We did um, uh, DMT while I was out there. I was interviewing a molecular biophysicist, and we went out there and 
I, I did DMT for the first time, and I had no drug experience or anything like that. Weed was the strongest thing that I smoked, right. but it was um, a crazy eye-opening kind of experience mm-hmm. in, a, in a really interesting way. Um, but they were talking about how uh, Denver at the time had just sort of recently legalized mushrooms. Or, or yes. Was it legalization or decriminal? I think it was decriminalized, oh, maybe. Okay, okay. Um, but I think that there is a strong, and I'm working on this documentary now, that um, I think there is a a case to be made to get some, perhaps some science to, or scientific eyes or some research studies done on the properties of DMT to maybe see mm. if it could help with mental illness in terms of depression, anxiety. Because uh, I've been pretty outspoken with my own fan base and my following mm-hmm. that, you know, I've, you know, when I first wrote this story back in 2010 and I was introduced to this weird viral internet fame or whatnot, it was the start of a lot of like depression and kind of like anxiety because of that for me. And um, I kind of overcame my own depression through diet and exercise and kind of these very specific steps. But the anxiety was something that was stayed with me a ton. And I think that that, you know, for most of my 20s, that was a powerful driving force for me that motivated a lot of what I did in terms of risk taking or maybe destructive behaviors or just kind of being lethargic and... Um, it's interesting how, again, I don't want to plug my own stuff right now, but for this, no, no. For, well, for this documentary thing, it's interesting how that, cause I have, uh, videos that I've done every time I've gone back to the hotel talking about my experience uh, doing DMT and this okay. hallucinogenic experience that kind of really helped put a lot of things in perspective uh, in this world. Okay. It's, it's crazy. Um, wow. but yeah, I mean, that's something that we are also seeing, I believe it's in record numbers in our generation um, of people coming. I don't, I don't know if they're coming forward with it because they feel more safe to do it now or if there's more. Yeah, or if there's more environmental triggers or what. But we're seeing this such an epidemic, I think, of depression and anxiety. And My guess is that there's some connection between all of it. And to be honest, I don't really believe that there's an expectation from your generation that you will do better than your parents' generation. There shouldn't be. I don't. I don't think. That yeah. I don't. I yeah. I think that the enough time has passed and enough millennials are yes. getting out there to like the home yes. buying age and realizing, holy yep. shit, absolutely. things are absolutely messed up. Yes. I have friends that because, and it's sad, uh, but I have a couple actually that was um, so obsessed with living this sort of idyllic what they thought. Growing up, what they thought was supposed to be this lifestyle of a suburban Carmel house, mm, okay. you know, two stories, you know, two kids, a dog, yep. one and a half car garage, that they are paying, like, I, they're renting. They're not even owning. Oh, okay. They're okay. paying, they're renting this house for, like, I believe it's $2,400 a month. Okay. They are breaking their financial wallets to try and live this dream that was so easily, not, I don't want to say easily, but was more realistically attainable yes. for their parents. And, um, you know, it, it, it's so wild. It, it's, and I, I think that with Burbuff, I, and you probably see this as well, but you kind of seeing people that have maybe had more advantages um, in general. Yeah. I know my parents had a struggle to put me through Burbuff, and I'm very grateful for that because it was a really incredible experience. Um, and I think it shaped a lot of who I am today. But, um you know, you're seeing a lot of that stuff where people may not, uh, you would think that they would be in a better position to be able to kind of afford all these luxuries. But I'm still seeing the yes. same stuff. Like even these yes. people that have had, Absolutely. you know, r- well, affluent parents and all that kind of stuff, 
um, like middle class, upper middle class, mm-hmm. they can't afford the same sort of stuff that their parents could. And it's like even even people that don't have the massive college debt. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah. it's so wild. Like just to, like I don't know. Now I, this is the best thing about social media for me. Yeah, it's that people like you are still somehow in my orbit. Yeah, even after yeah. all these years, and every once in a while, um, I'll see a student and feel like I want to reach out because of something that's something that's less than the ideal look life that's, that's <laughs> been posted. And uh, the reality is that it's all harder for your generation than it was for mine. It's all harder. The expectations are higher. Mm-hmm. Um, the expectations of educational and career attainment are higher. The pressure to do it sooner and more perfectly is abundant and very clear. Yeah. Um, and there are fewer opportunities. Yeah. People are living longer. People have the same uh, kind of job opportunities, and they're holding on to them longer and longer and longer. Mm-hmm. There are far more women who are um, in elite levels, and there's an awful lot of younger folks who are getting squeezed out. Yeah. I, I would argue that it started with my generation and deindustrialization. There were fewer ways of having a middle class or upper upper middle class life and it's uh significantly more de- that problem has become more significant significantly more developed for your generation than even for mine yeah i would agree with that uh, I, I i it's refreshing to hear um you know someone of your generation say that because yeah. like i i think a lot of the times there's this kind of I don't bootstrap think mentality you know? i don't think you're whining <laughs> like, it's like, come on, like, yes. listen, for God's yes. sake. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's just really interesting to see just and observe. I, I think there's probably never been a more exciting time to be alive because I'm so curious <laughs> to see what is going to happen just with yes. our, you know, culture that's evolving, oh our country, yeah. our economic status. Like, it's... it's and there a, really are so many possibilities. Right. Um, not all of them are bad, too. There's no, some good not, stuff. That not at all. This. I mean, the machine learning stuff that they're doing in MIT is incredible. But Well, and I just mentioned how many more people are, are part of the system um, and have the opportunity to really make changes. And that really does include um, people of multiple generations and mm-hmm. women and people from all around the world, people from people who have different um, – sexual um, and gender orientations Mm -hmm. a lot of folks who have been shut out in the past now have voices and that's 100% a good thing the problem of course is figuring out how to make all those voices not just be heard but appreciated and listened to right Um, but the opportunities are there (laughs) so yes I'm excited about the opportunities right I just don't have enough faith that we're gonna use them in the right way yeah I mean, <laughs> at least not yet. Well, we'll it's see. Coming. I, I kind of I share that sort of pessimism in that regard because it's like I. Let's be honest. <laughs> like I mean, this is probably not going to happen the way ideally it would work, but at least not um, immediately. Right. At I least not time immediately. Will, time will bore that out one way or the other. Well, but. and um, we were talking about politics earlier. Mm-hmm. Obama, of course, the first black person to be president. He was the first black person to be a serious contender for the White House, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. In 84 and 88, Jesse Jackson ran, and um, there were lots of black people who were excited about it, but 
there was no sense that Jesse might actually become president. That wasn't a real thing. Right. It doesn't at all seem peculiar right now that there are four, five, maybe six women who are running for president on the Democrat side. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a couple I'm not particularly enamored with, but um, the fact that it doesn't seem to be an issue is a giant big deal, or yes. not much of an issue. Yes, that's I a agree. giant big deal. Yeah, um, Pete Buttigieg is, in my mind, too inexperienced to become president. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, in a general election, if it were he versus Trump, I'd vote for him in a heartbeat. Uh, yeah, but um, and my issue, honestly, is simply that I don't want inexperience to become acceptable um, when it comes to the most important job in the world. Now. Uh, <laughs> I would almost argue that we're sort of already at that level, but... We, we are, but only on one side. <laughs> right. This um, could just be a fluke, and we could go back to normal. Well, <laughs> yes. Fingers and, crossed. And on the left, um, the folks that are running, again and again and again, are people... Sorry, the, the credible top-notch contenders right. are again and again and again people that um, have real experience in government. <clears throat> Excuse me. The uh, Billionaire Boys Club folks, I mean... This is just another opportunity for them to massage their egos. Yeah. They're not serious contenders. But the fact that someone who's openly gay and married, don't tell the people at Cathedral, um, <laughs> Luke, seems like a credible candidate. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's a revolution, revolutionary shift as well. I so agree 100%. Folks in your generation are already way more open than people in my generation. And that feels tremendously exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, So I can't even imagine 20 years from now what it's going to be like when the expectation is simply that the person matters and all the identity elements are secondary to who the person is. That's the whole content of your character stuff that MLK talked about. And it's a slow, long process, but we're moving toward it more quickly than maybe we ever have before. Yeah. That's a note of optimism. It is. It's really cool. I, 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 it's interesting how, um, you know, in a lot of ways that Hillary ended up becoming this trailblazer, I guess. Yes. Uh, in yes. a sense. Even though I wasn't, like, all the way on board with her. But um, that's my own personal opinion. But now no one really bats an eye at, you Not know, at seeing, you know, all these women up on stage. And it's just like that is – that alone, the good that she did with that yes. alone is – it's fantastic to me. I think that's really awesome. And I hope the uh, reality is that she won by three million votes mm-hmm. in every other election. Well, yeah, in every other election process anywhere in the world, she'd be the winner. Right. The person that wins more votes wins. That's just the way it typically works, with this one exception, and it's a really big fucking exception. Um, but yeah, I think there's a chance that 20 years from now she'll be seen as John the Baptist making the way. For uh, maybe Jesus, maybe. Um, I also kind of get why we have the electoral college in some sense because I think that a lot of otherwise you get you know these random states, flyover states that wouldn't really have a voice at all. In our sort of I think in the like Democratic Indiana, classes. yeah, a little bit, or like you know Wisconsin. Well, no, Wisconsin's a big one, but um, what about like Idaho? What about you know those other? No, yeah, not to be honest. Um, very few of those states have a voice now. Um, in the 2016 cycle, the only reasons that 
um, the candidates came to Indiana were for fundraising dinners. They didn't come to campaign. Yeah. Because very clearly they can take for granted um, a certain state. And because you don't have to win by any particular margin, mm-hmm. um, there's not really any incentive for them to um, explore here. There's a great YouTube video mm-hmm. by, I think it's CGP Gray. Mm-hmm. Um that explains it's something like the trouble with the Electoral College. He did it before the 2016 election, so it's not Trump-specific, but uh, it walks through, I believe that it's, right now, I think it was 24% of um, the population is enough to win the Electoral College. Now, really? it's, it's, it's mathematical. Right. So if you win by one vote in Idaho and I see, yeah. if you win by one vote in I think the 11 biggest states then you automatically win huh. it's uh, it's fascinating I'll have to take a look at that I mean because granted that was something I hadn't on paper you say well if you go by the popular vote then like those states don't have a voice but I'm sure it's way more nuanced than that so I'll have to take a look at that video and kind of see <laughs> I'm interested in hearing about that um, sure. and part of what's Part of what I think would be fascinating about getting rid of the Electoral College is that there are lots of places that might actually be in play that mm-hmm. haven't been thus far. So Indiana is absolutely a red state. Right. Obama was the only Democrat to win Indiana <laughs> yes, yes, since Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. I voted for him. Um, I, was my first, I was so proud of my first election. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yes. But Indianapolis um, is much more blue. Sorry. I can't search the <laughs> Come on, Sarah. Sarah, get get it together. <laughs> Indianapolis is much more blue than most of the rest of the state. Right. So would it, Indianapolis actually be a place where folks campaign for votes? Would they actually make an effort here? Um, if it were just about, I hey, see there are okay. a million and a half people who live here. We want as many of these people to vote for us as possible. Right. Would they actually try to make a stop? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yes, Gray, Gray has a, a really fascinating video about that. And there's something now called the Electoral College Compact. Mm-hmm. The short version is that lots of states, I think maybe 15 now, have agreed that um, when it co- no, I said it's wrong, a popular vote compact. Okay. That when enough states get together to sway an election one way or the other, that those states will agree to go with the popular vote winner regardless of who that person is hmm. in the Electoral College. Huh. <laughs> it's, it's a really peculiar situation. So what was the um, YouTube video again? I'll have to look at that. That's um, three initials, maybe it's CPB, CGP, something along those lines. Maybe like the name the last problem name, with the Electoral College. Gray. Uh, maybe the trouble with the, the Electoral trouble. College. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to look that up. Um, and Gray has lots of fascinating videos with really good animation and um, <laughs> interesting subjects, at least for someone who really likes political science. Right. <laughs> I would. Yeah. I'd be really interested to hear some of your takes. You know, once it's we really get closer to um, really the Democratic like uh, primary, absolutely, absolutely. When it, when is that? By the way, oh when my gosh, that? the process is so long. I know the process is. I feel like they start campaigning long. earlier and earlier and earlier. It's true. <laughs> like every it's true. election cycle. Yes, I can't imagine how many times Amy Klobuchar has been in Iowa already. Yeah, it's so close to her home state of Minnesota, and. Uh, Boy, I bet she loves all the corn dogs in Iowa. <laughs> every every state, I mean, every county fair has the best corn dogs. The best. <laughs> the best. Absolute best. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, I think we're running a little bit over. Oh, gosh, we have run a little bit over today. Um, we got to get you out of here. But um, 
You know, Franklin, thank you so much for joining Absolutely, today. Absolutely, Alex. I appreciate the invitation yeah. and the chance to actually see you in person. I know it's been it's been quite a few <laughs> quite a few years. Um, what was that? Po- so you do a podcast? I plug your stuff. Absolutely, I love. Oh, it. it's the Houdini Pod. W H O D E A N N Y Pod. And uh, <laughs> as of later this week, I'm going to uh, use Charlie Brown to explain why America is doing a really awful thing. Um, as it relates to people entering our southern border. Oh, so okay. <laughs> there's a quick preview. <laughs> so Houdini Pod, okay. And is that yeah. on uh, iTunes, Spotify? That's it what is, it is. Okay, awesome. All the, all the usual suspects. And uh, what's Very been cool. really great is that I've been able to have so many Baroff students on the podcast. Oh, no kidding. So I think the standard expectation is that at the front of the class, I'm supposed to be teaching these students. Uh-huh. But this has been a great way for me to get to learn from the young people. Which right. is which is wonderful, and honestly, should be part of why you do this job as a teacher. Right. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you again for having me on. Yeah, I definitely appreciate it, and uh, please give Luke my best. I'm glad to have had a chance to meet him. Absolutely, this is, this is good stuff. I've heard two or three of your podcasts so far, and uh, you have lots of really interesting perspectives <laughs> on things. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I try. No, that's tremendous. That's tremendous. I try and get um, people who I find would be interesting to talk to, and yeah. uh, just challenge myself and challenge Luke and to the try rough motto of open to growth. Yeah, open you're, to growth. you're living that out. hundred percent. Well, thank you. Out. I try Absolutely. to do at least. <laughs> but um, you could find me on Twitter at Alexander D Hall. Facebook is the same for my fan page there, and you can of course find the Digital Fireside on Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube. And that'll do it. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you guys next time.